0: were at a place yesterday it says don't walk on the grass we had to walk on the grass just to see why not and in the same way adam disobeyed god and blamed his wife for it well there's nothing new there but this led to some dreadful consequences for us all in romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says that sin entered the world through adam And death entered through sin. And in this way, death came to all of mankind. Sin entered the world. And the consequences of this are seen everywhere that we look. You've only got to look around and see that the world has gone badly wrong. It's natural disaster after natural disaster. There's terrible things being done to terrible people and good people. There's famines, there's difficulties, there's struggles, the consequences of sin. And this affected not just Adam, who disobeyed God, but the whole human race. Paul says death came to everybody, to all mankind. And by death, Paul isn't just talking about physical death, he's talking about a kind of spiritual death. And this comes from having been cut off from God. And it's because of sin that there is a huge barrier between God and us. A huge barrier, and we all sense this, and it's why so many of us try to hide from God. It's why that people pretend that he doesn't exist, because there's this barrier, and it's awkward. But God doesn't leave it there, because as the whole story of the Bible shows, that God, although God doesn't need any of us, he loves the human race. And he loves every one of us. And so he committed himself to a rescue plan. God's rescue plan began with a man called Abraham. A man whom he called and whom he made many promises. And God said to this elderly man that despite his age and the lack of any heir, that he would bless him with many descendants and his family would be special. Actually, God says, you're going to become known as the father of many nations. And so this amazing miracle occurred because Adam, uh, Abraham, even though he was very old, more than a 100 years old, gave birth, or his wife at least did, to a son. And they called his name Isaac. And Isaac means laughter because it was just an incredible joke that God would give this promise to such an elderly couple and a son would be born. And it was from Isaac that a whole nation called Israel arose. And this was the first group of people that God called his people. And so they became known as the people of God. And God blessed his people. He gave them food, he gave them prosperity, he gave them health, he gave them happiness. And you can read about it throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And even when a famine broke out in the land, the people found refuge in Egypt through Joseph, whom God had already arranged to be the boss of Egypt, and he was ready there to receive him. And in Egypt, God's favor for the people of God became very obvious. See, in that foreign country living alongside the Egyptians, God's favor became plain. They began to stand out from the people around them. The prosperity began to prosper, the riches began to exceed to such an extent that the Egyptians began to see them as a threat. We thought we were here just to look after these poor people that had come to this place of famine, but actually they began to exceed their hosts. So in their fear and their jealousy, Egypt turned against the people of God, started mistreating them and forcing them to be slaves. And it went on for many years, and the people cried out to God, saying, God, send somebody to save us from this injustice. Set Set us free. And so God sent them Moses, a man who led them out of Egypt with amazing miracles and signs, again, of God's incredible favor. They came out with incredible wealth. And God led them from Egypt to the desert, where they wandered for 40 years. But you know, even there, in that desperate place, in that place of difficulty, God continued to provide for them and to lead them. And eventually, having wiped out seven enemies who stood in their way, God gave them a land of their own, the land of Canaan. All this took about 450 years. And then after this, God gave them judges to administer justice and to enforce God's laws, civilizing their nation. They learned how to protect their citizens in a way that just didn't compare with the nations around them. And this went on until Samuel the prophet was raised up. And he spoke to them the very words of God. And he led them with incredible wisdom and the kindness of God was shown to them through this period. But even then, the people grew dissatisfied and they asked for a king. They said, We want to be like the other nations that have got kings. We want all that uh, pomp and ceremony. We want all those displays of wealth and glory. They wanted an image makeover. And so God gave them Saul, who was the son of Kish, out of the tribe of Benjamin, a man who had the image. It says that he stood head and shoulders over the rest. But he didn't have the character. And so after Saul had ruled for 40 years, God removed him from office and put King David in his place. With this commendation, God says, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. But through it all, through all these years from adam to abraham to david there was an ongoing problem that despite god's favor and his faithfulness the people just couldn't stop sinning they just couldn't obey god they just continued to disobey him time and time again i mean think about it adam only had one rule to keep don't touch that tree So how do you think the Israelites Israelites could keep God's laws? They couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments. And so God, who loved the world, that's you and me, sent Jesus. from a human point of view, he was the descendant of David, but from God's point of view, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But the citizens and the rulers in Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. This invisible God now made visible in flesh. And they condemned him to death. They couldn't find a good reason, so they made one up. And they demanded that Pilate execute him anyway. And Jesus' death, it was just the most horrible of executions The cross was the vilest instrument of torture known to man. And they vented all their anger on him. They beat him. They cursed him. And they left him to hang naked on a wooden cross. His arms stretched out like some kind of eternal invitation for everyone to see. Unwittingly, they did just what the prophets of the Old Testament said they would do. Now, even the crucifixion was described there thousands of years before. said a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And all the beatings and the torture that he would endure is all written there. But they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea, but they were following to the letter the script of the prophets, even though those same prophets were read at their Sabbath every week in their meeting place. They still didn't know what they were doing. After they'd done everything the prophets said they would do, they took him down from the cross and they buried him. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. It belonged to somebody else. But it didn't matter because Jesus would only be staying there a couple of nights. Because on the third day, God... The creator of the whole world, the Lord of all life, raised him from the dead. I mean, it sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? No other world religion has ever dared to make such a claim. Muhammad is dead. It's clear. (laughs) Guru Nanak, he's dead. Buddha is dead. Even Abraham is dead. Nobody else dared make such a claim, but Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead and is now alive. Why look for the living amongst the dead, the angel cried. He's not here, he's risen. The women who followed Jesus, they saw the empty tomb and so did his disciples. Then he himself appeared that evening before them, alive. There's no disputing this. He appeared over and over again, many times and in many places to those who'd known him in the Galilean years. And on one occasion, he appeared to 500 people all at the same time. They saw him alive. Jesus is alive. And you know, when Jesus was raised from the dead, when God did this, he did it for good. There wasn't any going back to the rot and the decay of the grave for him. That's why Isaiah said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David, which was a king who would reign forever." So also the psalmist's prayer, where he says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Because Jesus, you see, he appeared in a new resurrection body. And he never died again, but he ascended into heaven, and even now is seated at the right hand of God. You know, David, of course, having completed the work that God set out for him, has been in the grave, dust and ashes, for a long time now. But the one God raised up, no dust and ashes for him. And in this we find hope hope of the new life that's been promised to us, a fresh start, a new beginning, hope of a resurrection that we will too one day enjoy. Hope of new resurrected bodies. Anybody want one? (laughs) No sickness, no death, no pain. Hope of an eternal salvation with Christ. But you know, this is more than just a future hope. The resurrection is the ultimate manifestation of all that Jesus taught us about his kingdom. I'll say that again. The resurrection is the ultimate manifestation of all that Jesus taught us about his kingdom. See, through the resurrection, more than any other demonstration of power, Jesus showed what it would truly mean for God's kingdom to come on earth. God's kingdom come. Jesus, who performed so many miracles saying, look, this is what the kingdom is like the deaf hear, the blind see, the demons flee, creating a new benchmark for what is possible to those who believe. Through the resurrection, God's perfect show and tell, we see that the dead are truly raised, that new life is tangibly given, that sins are completely dealt with, and because the wages of sin have been paid, there can no longer be any condemnation we have what is called a living hope. A hope that can be experienced both here and now on earth, foretastes of heaven, but also which endures for all eternity. Our hope is in Christ who was and is and is to come forever. It's a living hope and it never gets old. And this is a story that demands a response. It's not just any old story, a tale of some kind of Disney invention where good triumphs over evil and we all get to live happily ever after. Now, this story is one of God's pursuit of man. It's mind blowing. It's crazy. But it's true. And it demands a serious response. And Paul knows this. And so at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 13, he warns us with some words from one of the prophets. He says this, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. What a frightening, awesome warning. It's a warning for us all to take what Jesus did seriously He's saying that some are going to scoff. Others will wonder but not respond. Some will just refuse to believe, but everyone has to respond. There is a response to the gospel. Some respond and say, I want Jesus to be my saviour. Some respond and say, this isn't what I want. But there is a response. And the seriousness is this, that God, through Jesus... Gave his life in exchange for your life. He rose again so that each of us could live a new life too. A new life in so many ways. To start again with this slate wiped clean, sins forgiven, born again. A new disposition before God. Wanting to obey him and please him. And I just want to say, if you haven't come to Jesus yet, please come. And come quickly. He's pursuing you. That's why you find him so irresistible. That's why you can't stop from coming back, just having another taster, just another look, just another listen. He's irresistible. He's the Lord of life. Come to Jesus. But it's new too because of all that the resurrection represents in terms of the kingdom breaking in look, if the resurrection is the benchmark of our faith as demonstrated by Jesus, what on earth does this make possible? Let me finish with this. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about creating a supernatural culture. And I've been thinking about what would it mean to live in a supernatural culture? I mean, what would it mean for the supernatural to become our supernormal A few weeks ago Helen Denny prophesied about this she said that if we wanted to know what it was like to live in a supernatural culture just take a look at the resurrection that's where it starts the resurrection is an outrageous supernatural display God is just plain showing off if God can raise the dead then what can't he do I mean, who else but a supernatural God for whom nothing is impossible? Who else would make the victory over death the pinnacle of his message? The resurrection makes anything possible. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. This is unimaginable power. Not only does that power work in us... Resurrecting our own dirty, lost, broken lives. Changing us from the inside out. But also through us, the message of the resurrection is communicated to everyone around us. What kind of power does it take to raise the dead? The same spirit lives in us. I just want to read a quote from N.T. Wright He wrote an amazing book called Surprised by Hope Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection and the Mission of the Church So it's just a tiny little book Uh, It's about that wide I think But it says that He says here that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project not to snatch people away from earth to heaven but to colonize colonize earth with the life of heaven This after all is what the Lord's prayer is about Amen I just felt like God wanted to show off a bit he's been at this for an awful long time and his supernatural power is breaking in and he wants to reveal his resurrection power to us not just today but on a daily basis Resurrection power, dead, raised, new life, is what the gospel is all about.